We're continuing in the Exodus series. So go ahead and open up to the book of Exodus. It's the second book in the Bible, if you've got a paper Bible. It's uh, chapter 16. We're going to look at two chapters tonight. Next week, we're going to look at the famous golden calf story, and we're going to land the plane on the Exodus series. After that, we're going to move into a series on identity. That's a topical series. It's not a book series. And then after that, we're just going to jump straight into the deep end, and we're going to do like a 30,000-foot view of the book of Revelation and the end of the world. It'll be great. Easy topics. Um, and so, but that's what we like to do here. We like to just kind of jump in and see what happens. As long at the end, of, at the end of the day, as long as we have gotten in this book, and we have tried to think about the things of God and wrestle with the things of God, I'm content with that. I'm I'm happy. I'm happy with that. And that's where we're going tonight. Looking at the text itself, two chapters. We're going to answer three questions tonight. We're going to look at three questions: Is God trustworthy? Are His instructions, dependable, and do I understand Christian community? And so the way the Old Testament is put together, it's got, you'll, you'll read especially some of the narratives, and you'll see three stories or four stories back to back to back, and you're thinking like weird, 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 like or very interesting, strange story, very interesting. And then it'll go to a different type of literature all within the same book. And you know that the author, for some reason, put those stories together, and they're trying to tell a bigger story. And so tonight, in chapters 16 and 17, we'll see three different stories, and I do believe they're all put together by Moses through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I think all of these were put together so that we can see a bigger picture of something that's happening. And so we will start off with Exodus chapter 16. Let me read the first few verses. I'm not going to read the whole chapter to you, but Exodus 16, verse 1. They set out from Elam. And all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. And on the 15th day of the second month, after they had departed from the land of Egypt, so just side note, they have been traveling now for a, a, a couple of months. Like they've been, they're, they're in like the, the new period, but not super new period of being away from Egypt. So they're kind of getting the hang of this. If you know the story, if you remember the story, by day a cloud is leading them. The Lord is leading them uh, in, in a cloud. And by night the Lord is leading them by fire. So they've started to learn what does it look like to leave Egypt and to begin to follow the Lord. How does the Lord work as you begin to follow him? And so they're starting to, to see a pattern of, okay, God's going to show up in this cloud during the day. At night, he's going to show up in this fire. When the cloud would stop, they were to stop. When the fire would stop, they were to stop. When the cloud moved, they were to move. When the fire moved, they were to move. And so they're starting to understand this pattern now. And so they've been doing this for a couple of months. It's the second month, the 15th day of the second month. Verse 2, and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The people of Israel said to them, What would that we had died in the hands of the died by the hands of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by meat pots and ate bread to the full? For you have brought us into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So they're leading like a really happy church. Um, and then verse 4: The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. Let's just pause right there. There's a word right here, verse 4, in the ESV, about. 
This is an interesting moment. The people, they're not accustomed to the suffering of the desert just yet, but they're getting close to it. They know this is a barren land. They know that they need Moses to be a really good leader so they can find water and food and those things. And they're starting to lose weight. Like they've notched an extra notch in their belts um, or whatever they wore. And they're like pulling things tighter. And they're thinking, we need some help here. And you know what? Then they start thinking we had it better in Egypt. And we see that throughout their whole journey. They keep thinking, man, maybe we should just go back to the old life. Many, many Christians once they come to Christ, don't just have one moment of thinking, I wonder if I should just go back to the old life. Many, many Christians, myself included, I've had those times where it's like, man, it would just be easier to sin. It'd just be easier to go back to Egypt. But that's where they are. At least they're honest about it. And they're grumbling. And God steps in and God says, I am about to send bread to them. Let me say this, many people who start off following the Lord, they just, they quit when God is about to do something. Now, they don't know that God's about to do this. Moses didn't know that God was about to do it until he told him, but they, they were just about to throw in the towel and God was just about to show up. It goes back to that story I told last week about that guy who told me to stay in the deer stand longer than I wanted to, and then I would, I would kill that giant deer. The guy, if you were here last week, he, I knew he was Southern when he called um, insect repellent skeeter dope. And, uh, and so he, uh, he said, he, his, his advice on deer hunting was, when you want to get out of the stand, don't, stay longer. And that's kind of a, a mantra that we start to see Moses encouraging the people. When you want to give up on God, don't stay a little bit longer because you don't know when he's about to do something. And that's really important. If you go back to Egypt, you'll never see what he was about to do. So the Lord says to Moses, behold, verse four, I'm about to send rain or to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and they'll gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my laws or not. Now, what the people of Israel started to experience at this point was they started to have to answer the question, is God trustworthy? And I hope everybody in this room either is currently wrestling with that idea or you've wrestled it and you've put it to bed. But the big question in all the movements of life is, is God trustworthy? The resounding answer by most of the world is no. Most folks either don't know enough about God to make an informed decision, but a lot of people who do know enough about God have decided, no, he's not trustworthy. I'll just stay in Egypt. At least there we have food. That's what the people are wrestling with here. Is following God good? Is he trustworthy? And what does the Lord say to them? He says, I'm going to test them. If you're an underliner, I would underline that in verse four. Also, two key moments in verse four. God is about to do something, and God says he's going to test them. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about God testing you, but he does. He tests people's faith all the time. However, one thing God does not do is tempt 
And the book of James, James 1, 1 through 15, if you want a, a, a secondary reading on this, James 1, 1 through 15, he really outlines this idea that you are blessed when your faith is tested. But then he goes on and he says, but don't be deceived, God does not tempt. And so in just a minute, we're going to go back to this idea of testing versus tempting when we get to the second movement of, of the story. But I just want you to know that this, this one thought is important to me. Testing allows God to make a way through. Tempting allows God to make a way out. When you are tested, God will provide a way through the test. When you are tempted, God always provides a way out. I remember when I was in college, I went to 722, a young adult gathering at that point in time, led by this little-known man named Louis Giglio, and it was like me and 2,000 of his closest friends, and we were all gathered at North Point Community Church, and he had all these, like, all these traffic cones on the stage, and, uh, and he did this whole sermon on 1 Corinthians 10.13, and I thought, that is, that's a verse I need to memorize, and so I did not long after that. I memorized 1 Corinthians 10.13, but that verse says that when you are tempted, take heart. God won't let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. And when you are tempted, God will provide a way out. So God doesn't tempt you. When you are tempted, he provides a way out, but he will test you. And when he tests your faith, he provides a way through it. The problem is most people treat temptations and test the same, and they just run from them. If you don't want to sin, you're just going to run from the temptation, and if you don't want the discomfort of the test, you run from the test. And uh, there's, there's a late, some of you know who Beth Moore is. She, um, she did this, I forget what series she did. She's done a million of those books that are like 12 weeks long, but in one of those books, she says that we have a God who requires us to get straight A's, meaning that when he gives us a test, if we don't finish the test, if we don't walk through the test with him, that he'll find another way to repeat that test in our lives. And you know, I've seen that kind of true. The times that I run from the test of God, he'll bring them back because there's a refining that he wants to do in your life. And he can't do that refining unless you allow him to guide you through that test. And so the test in this case is, hey, I, will they trust me? I'm going to give them bread six days a week, but on the seventh day, I'm not going to give them any bread. And that's the test. It's a simple test. And so the whole rest of the chapter is devoted to do they pass this test or not? Do they trust that God can provide enough bread in six days to cover all seven? And so every day, the story goes that they, they walk out and they're like, what is that? One day they walk out and there's this fine, the, the scripture says in Exodus 16, that it was as fine as frost on the ground. And they walk out and they said, what is that? Now Moses being the good leader that he was, I guess he knew what it was, but he made a good guess. He was like, that's the bread. And they were like, all right. And so they gather the frost off the ground and they put it together and they think, okay, well, what if it doesn't come tomorrow? Now, God said, don't keep it two days. Just get enough for today. I'll bring it back tomorrow. So the people keep it because they're like, I don't trust God. And the next morning they walk out and it's rancid and it has worms in it. 
and it's right outside of their little tents, or maybe it was in their tents so that their neighbor wouldn't steal their little bread that they didn't trust God would give them enough of. And so a lot of people failed the test. That happens all week long. And then finally, Saturday or Friday comes, and they're like, okay, Friday's coming. Let's get a bunch of food. And a bunch of them at this point during the week, they've learned, okay, if I get enough now, I will, he's going to, it's going to be enough for tomorrow. And for a lot of people, it was. They gathered enough and they had enough for the Sabbath. And it taught them that if you follow God, he'll provide when he says he'll provide. He's trustworthy. But some of the folks didn't get much and they went back out on the Sabbath and they started trying to collect. And God said, what are they doing? I told them to listen to me. How long will they remain hard-hearted? Now, you, you can hear that story and you can think, that's just like a little thing. Like, I mean, we're just talking like gathering weird stuff off the ground and like, um, you know, like that's our bread. Like, what's, what's the big deal? The scriptures teach that if you can't be faithful in little, how can he make you master over much? So don't, don't look for the Lord to, to do these incredible tests to make you this incredible person if you can't get through the little stuff. And he's providing a little test for them. Now, I do love, I just have to tell you this. I do love, look at verse 15. When the people of Israel saw it, um, well, you can go back. I'll just read the, the whole thing. Look in verse 13. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. Quail's a whole nother, a whole nother message. Um, and in the morning, dew lay on the ground around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine, flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. Verse 15. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know that it was, they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. Now, I don't know if you know this, but if you just look real quick, if, you're, if you have a Bible like mine that's paper, you can look on the other side and you can see chapter 17. In 17 verse 7, there's two words, Massa and Meribah. Massa and Meribah. Massa means testing. Meribah means quarreling. So in your Bible, sometimes they just transliterate a word. The authors will say like, well, we won't transliterate we won't translate quarreling and testing. We'll just put the Hebrew equivalent of it in English and we'll transliterate it and put it there. For whatever reason, they translated the word in chapter 16, verse 15. Manna. It literally means, what is it? And that's the name that stuck. And so the people were like, what is it? And somebody, you know, which is manna in Hebrew. And people were like, that's what we're calling it forever. It's the perfect name. And so forever they called, what is it? Like, what is it? That's to this day, if you talk to a Hebrew person and you're like, tell me the story of manna, what you're saying is, tell me the story of what is it? And so I just love that, that like God let him get away with that. He was like, I get it, it's weird. And so like, they, it was fine. They ended up putting a jar of it in the ark and they remembered the what is it. Uh, now look at verse 35. The people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to the habitable land. They ate manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. So God gave them, what is it, for 40 years, despite all that they did to fight his plans. He gave them manna and water and kept their shoes and their clothes from wearing out. And so what does that teach us? It teaches us what 2 Timothy 2.13 says, that he is faithful even when we're faithless. 
Look, this picture of God sending this daily bread to a faithless generation, which is ultimately why they won't go into the promised land, is a picture of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Turn to John chapter 6 with me. John chapter 6. Some of you know these verses. John chapter 6, starting in verse 48. Jesus said, I'll start actually in verse 47 here. Jesus said in John 6, 47, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. John 6, 48, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread. I can imagine he's touching his chest when he says this. This is the bread of life. I'm the bread of life that came down from heaven so that you may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. All the way back in Exodus 16, when God starts the manna coming down, the what is it? Offering life to an obstinate group of people. It shows us that he is completely trustworthy. We're the ones in question. And even though we're completely in question all the time and we question him and we, don't, we doubt him and we wonder about him, for 40 years every day, this foreshadowing of Christ shows up over and over and over again, being much more than food, but being a picture of the one who is to come. And I love this, that Jesus could think back to that time when the manna would come down and maybe touch his chest and say, no, 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 I, I, me, I am the bread that comes out of heaven. Eat my flesh and live. And at Christ's covenant, every Sunday morning when we don't have a baptism service, we take the Lord's Supper, we take communion. And maybe now, if you're a part of this body or wherever you worship, if you take communion the next time, you'll think back to what is it before you put that wafer in your mouth. And you'll think all the way back to this story, and you'll think way back when he was beginning to prepare the way to show that God is capable of sending Life, a life-saving meal out of heaven to people who certainly didn't deserve it, couldn't appreciate it, and at best, just barely understood it. And a quick little side note, the first time Jesus showed up in your life, if he has shown up in your life, you probably thought, what is it? Because he's so out of the blue and so different and so extraordinarily unique and wonderful. You've never seen anything like him. And so maybe in heaven, his nickname is Manna. Who knows? Let's look at the next movement in this story. So the first question is, is God trustworthy? And if he is trustworthy, then we have to realize that Egypt's got to be really, really great 
for us to wander back. And if we're honest about the Egypt that God has brought us from, we know it pales in comparison with the Lord. And Egypt was anything but trustworthy. And so if we decide the Lord is trustworthy, then we have to ask, are his instructions dependable? Look at Exodus 17, 1 through 7, the water from the rock. Are his instructions dependable? So starting in verse 1 of chapter 17, the next movement in this collage of stories All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. And therefore the people quarreled with Moses, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Let's pause right there. It's one thing for God to test us. He gets permission to test us. He, he's, he's more than earned the right to test us, us finite beings. It's a very different thing for us to decide to put him to the test. And that's where this, there's a flip in the story. In the first story, the Lord tests them. In the second story, they start testing God. And it's always a no-no when we start testing God who needs no test. And so... They began to grumble, verse 3, but the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? They loved saying that. Uh, Verse 4, so Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and the water will come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah. Massa means testing. Meribah means quarreling. Because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? In Nehemiah 9, chapter 13, in fact, I would just kind of mark Nehemiah 9. It's an incredible passage. It's Nehemiah, and they're telling the story. They're retelling the story of the Exodus in Nehemiah 9. In Nehemiah 9, 13, he says, You came down on Mount Sinai, and you spoke with them from heaven, and you gave them right rules, true laws, good statutes, and commandments. So Nehemiah thinks back to the time of this exodus, and he says, look, I remember one thing about the story. God shows up, and God gives them good instructions. But the problem is we question God's instructions, and we've been trained to question God's instructions. You remember the garden, back in the garden. What was the thing that the serpent said to Eve? The first thing the serpent said to Eve was, did God really say that? People have been questioning God for as long as people have been around. Did God really say that? That is a line straight from the pits of hell. Did God really say to do that? And Satan begins to twist the words of God. I think I've told some of you, when I was, um, when I was in high school and I was, I was in the dating world, I, uh, I dated a couple of girls. And when I became a Christian, I dated a girl and we did some things that were immoral in that dating relationship. And, uh, and I, I knew, I was, I was a youth group kid. I was like there every Wednesday night and Sunday morning, and I genuinely thought it's that 
what the youth pastor is saying is true. People should not do those things, Christians. They should wait till marriage and they should respect other people. But for me and my girlfriend, it's fine because we're mature. Now, you don't arrive at that conclusion overnight. That is a slow, a slow fade of logic and morals. And it all starts with, yeah, but did God really say that? It's the oldest question in the book, and it still works. And I think what we're looking at here are God's instructions dependable? Now, he has not given them the Bible yet. That's not going to happen. It's not going to start to unfold until Exodus chapter 20, a couple of more chapters from now. But God's going to start to give them his word to be recorded and lived by. But right now, he is giving them little instructions one by one, and they have to decide, okay, is he, is he trustworthy and are his instructions dependable? You know, 1 John 5, 3, right? This is a great verse to write down. It says, for the love of God... For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Now living in the bondage of sin, which is, which is represented by Egypt here, that's burdensome. Living under the care and guidance and instruction of the Lord, that is freedom. The commands of the Lord are not burdensome, but these people are thinking, God called us out here. He brought us out here. This seems like a place we're going to die. Egypt seems better. They're beginning to question the dependability of God's instructions. You know, here's the, 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 the definition, the Hebrew definition of the word testing means to prove. When you think back to proving something, one, one illustration that comes to my mind is the Neil Armstrong uh, Bud Aldrich story of Apollo 11. I think we have a picture of that. Oh, yeah, look at that. Look at that. That was done in a Hollywood studio. Um, yeah. And so, anyway, you know, the story is that they landed on the moon. I wasn't there. I can't vouch for it. But uh, what, what the deal with Apollo 11 is this. It was a beautiful, it was a beautiful project. I mean, this rocket is incredible. The computer system that designed it had never even, the world had never seen a computer system like that. But here's the deal. You have to prove that it works. And the only way to prove that it works is not to put on the suit and not to walk around the ship and not to like, you know, fire up a little rocket thruster and then turn it back off. The way you prove that it works is you put your money where your mouth is and you get in it and you fly the thing. That's what happens when God tests you. You have this moment where you've read the Bible and you've heard the Bible and you know the verses and all the things and you can hold the Bible, you can talk about the Bible, you can talk about the dead guys that you've read and you can talk about how, well, you know, I really think Phoebe was a deacon. Well, I'm not sure if she was. And you can like, you can debate all the stuff and you can do all the things and have all the knowledge, but until you get in the rocket ship and take off, you haven't proved a thing. And these folks, they loved to question. And when all you do is question God, you never pass the test. God puts us in a place of testing so that we get into the Scripture and we live it out and see if it's true. And until we live it out and prove that it's true, we're just spectators. We're just thinkers and observers. 
There's a difference between collecting Bible knowledge and biblical obedience to God. And we are in a very educated church, a very educated society. A lot of you come from really academic backgrounds. And I'll just tell you what a buddy of mine told me. He was on staff with crew. He was like the least. One guy told me one time that I was the least ministerial minister that he knew, and that wasn't nice. But this guy really was like the least ministerial minister that I ever knew. And uh, his name was Nick. And Nick was like a Seattle guy, and he was like, flannel grunge rock Seattle like he was like transplanted to Atlanta and Nick was great he had like a mouth of a sailor but he loved the Lord and it was like very confusing to me and so I would hang out with Nick and uh and Nick was one day Nick said Thomas you know you don't ever have to do Bible study again and I was like say it again Nick what do you mean because I spent a lot of time doing Bible study he said you know enough you don't live it out and I was like all right Nick (laughs) go back to the west coast Um, he said, nobody does. He said, people around here, they know so much Bible and I don't see him living it. I don't see him living any different. Now, obviously that was overstated and overspoken. We were on a summer mission project for crying out loud, Nick, but (laughs) there's a little bit of an edge to that that cuts because it's kind of true. For a lot of you, if your Bibles were taken away today and not given back for 12 months, you have enough knowledge. The question is, do you have enough trust? Do you believe that the things of God that you know are dependable, that his commands are good and you could follow them and live them out? And these folks, they had this moment, this incredible moment where they stood and watched Moses standing on a rock. And Moses, a good shepherd who had spent 40 years shepherding in the wilderness, knew when he saw that rock, the one God told him to go to, that it actually wasn't a rock. It was a spring that had crystallized over. And only an expert shepherd can spot one of these springs that do exist to this day that has crystallized over. And when Moses stood on that rock, he knew, oh, the Lord brought me exactly to a spot where there is a spring of living water right underneath us. And God said, Moses, strike the rock. And when he did, he broke the shell, the crust of that crystallized spring, and water began to gush out. Which again is a foreshadowing of our Lord and Savior. In 1 Corinthians 10 verse 4, Paul says, and all of them drank the same spiritual rock, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Right there in the middle of the desert, when the people were questioning, does God have any idea what he's doing and who's this leader that God's put in front of us? That leader who trusted God, followed God, and struck the rock, and the rock began to bubble up life. And it's by no coincidence that in the Gospels, Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. And he says, I'm the water of life also.
It's not by coincidence that the rock that we are to build our foundation on was the very rock that carried the water of life. And Moses strikes it, and it is this foreshadowing that Paul would pick up on years and years later and write about in 1 Corinthians 10. Again, going back to the Nehemiah story in Nehemiah 9.20, he says, You gave your spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth, and you gave them water for their, for their thirst. So if I believe that Jesus is trustworthy and, I will, and I'm willing to follow him out of Egypt, if I believe his instructions are dependable, then it leads me to one more conclusion that I want to hone in on tonight for just a minute. If I believe that God's trustworthy, if I believe that his commandments are good and not burdensome, then I think the way that I interact with fellow believers, and on this side of the Bible, the New Testament, we would call this Christian community, then I would say the next step would be, do I understand what Christian community is? So let's look at the story of outstretched arms and ask the question, do I understand Christian community? The second half of chapter 17 is a very interesting story. We've gone from manna on the ground to water gushing or a rock that gushes water, and now there's going to be a battle. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. And so Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men. Go out and fight with Amalek tomorrow. I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. And so Joshua did as Moses told him, and he fought with Amalek. And while Moses and Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill, whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. And so they took a stone and they put it under him and he sat on it. While Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side, the other on the other side, so his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Um, Heather, Heather and I, this is like a, an, abrupt, an abrupt stop from this story. It actually fits, if you'll just follow with me here. Heather and I have been um, binge-watching. This is a confession. You can judge me if you want. It's fine. We've been binge-watching Inventing Anna. And so us in Netflix and Inventing Anna, we've been watching this. And, uh, and I went to bed last night. I was like, I have got to make sure that I have a little bit of sleep for Tuesday night. I got to go to bed. And she was like, I'll tell you how it ends. And I was like, all right. And so she finished the story of Inventing Anna. And it's such a fascinating story. Um, like, most everybody in the story is a little bit of a con artist, uh, and so very interesting. But here's the deal. Anna, this girl, she comes to America, and what she really needs is community. She so needs community. But what she seeks is society. And I watch folks come in the doors on Tuesday nights and on Sunday mornings, and, and I don't know, I can't, I don't make a judgment when people come in because I, I don't know. I'm glad people are coming in. I want everybody to come in, uh, almost everybody to come in. Uh, and so anyway, I mean, we got to be a little human, right? And so, so do you. And so uh, I think I wonder sometimes, man, are, are, are folks coming in because they know they need community? And I don't shy away from the fact that I think community is one of our biggest assets. 
I love that we have time for dinner. I love that people do like, I think there's like 57 sports teams on one of the group meetings or something. Like you, like you, like you, you people do a lot. You should stop um, doing some stuff. Like you should sleep a little bit. Get, keep your jobs. Um, and so like, but community is really important. We have people from other, other churches that are on staff at other churches that come because they need this community. We have divorced people that come because they need community. We have married people that come because they need community. We have single people that come because they need community. We've got, we got it all. You name it, we got it. And, uh, and I love that. But it breaks my heart because I think some folks are coming needing community. But what, they really, what they're really coming for is society. And here's how I would put the difference Community is when we gather to help each other arrive at our destination. And in Christ, we gather together, married, singled, divorced, like lots of friends, few friends, like engineers and like consultants, like the whole mix. Like we got them all, artists and and engineers and consultants and everybody in between, we got them. In Christ, we come together with all our differences and all our backgrounds in order to safely arrive at home. We bear one another's burdens. We're a safe place. We pray for each other. We care for each other. We grow. We confess our sin. We help each other. But if one is coming to see and be seen, they're coming for themselves and society the socialites. They're the ones that are coming to see and to be seen and ultimately just absorb and soak up and use and abuse folks. And it's a dangerous, dangerous thing to play with. And it's really easy to fall into that. I love this story of Aaron and her. Moses, the man of God, is up there with his staff. And they're waging battle. And when he has his staff lifted up, Joshua and the troops beat the Amalekites. But when he gets tired and his staff falls down, they, the Amalekites begin to overcome Joshua and the Israelites. And Aaron and her see this. And I love this because I don't know if there was a stone up on the hill or not, but they had a, there ended up being a stone up on the hill. And these men put this stone underneath him and he sits down on it. And I can imagine Moses is probably thinking, I have to keep my hands raised. And they, they, they help him like gently, you know, sit down. And if you've ever stood for a really long time, if you've ever been in like a, um, like a really long wedding or something and you were up there and you were like, let's wrap this bad boy up. Um, like, you know, if you've ever had one of those moments where you're like, I just need to sit or you've worked retail. I worked retail for like nine months when I was in college. Uh, that was like a lot of standing. Um, or you nurses, Lord help you. Like you stand all the time. So if you've had one of those moments where you're like, I just need to sit down, they sit him down, but he, his arms are up. And then Aaron on one side comes underneath and pulls his arm up. And her on the other side comes underneath and pulls his arm up. And until the sun goes down, those three men stood up on that hill keeping their arms up, keeping Moses' arms up to the Lord so that the battle would go towards Israel. And it's an incredible story of these three men coming together, helping the people to get to the destination of the Lord and to safely arrive at home. 
Now, what if people looking up the hill during the battle were to think, yeah, but I know Moses. He's only doing this for his own glory so that people will think, oh, that guy, what a spiritual giant. If that was true of Moses, he would have been for society and not for community. But we're told in Numbers 12, 3, now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. And what if they saw her up there and they thought, yeah, but each time a new girl walks in, her asks her out in the first two minutes. He doesn't even know anything about her. Uh, was that too close? Sorry. Uh, and so, you know, it's a dangerous thing. When you come together in community, you need to be able to have people speak into your life so that when God does put you in a moment of leadership, he see, people see a person who is proven and tested and genuinely walking with the Lord. The good news is they didn't see her and think that about him. They didn't think he was like a serial dater. They knew him, and they thought that he was a godly man helping out another brother. And what, what if they saw Aaron up there, and they were like, yeah, but that guy's a jerk. He, like, only quotes the dead guys, and he's, like, read every theological book, and he can't wait to tell me how I'm wrong in my views and how that church is wrong, but this church is right, and he wants to argue over politics and everything else. No, no, then Aaron would have been known as a divisive man. But instead, Aaron was known as an intercessor between the people and God. When we trust God and we agree that his instructions are dependable, we simultaneously sign on the dotted line and agree to his plan for interpersonal relationships. You and I ought to treat people different than everybody else in the rest of the world. Turn with me real quick to Matthew chapter 5. It's our last verse we're going to look up. Matthew 5, 21 through 24. Jesus said this in the section on anger in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not stumble and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool or raka, will be liable to the hell of fire. Verse 23, if you're an underliner, you need to underline Matthew 5, 23. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. If we trust, if we believe God is trustworthy, if we agree that his, uh, his instructions are dependable, then simultaneously I need to agree that the way we treat each other in Christian community is different than everybody else. We ought to be the first to roll the stone underneath the guy, to sit him down on it, to hold his arms up while he's doing the things of God or while she's doing the things of God. We ought to be different than everybody else. And therefore, tonight or last week, or whenever it was, if you were in here worshiping or somewhere else worshiping and you remembered, so-and-so can't stand me. 
So-and-so has something against me. I sinned against so-and-so. God counts our interpersonal relationship so important that he says, quit singing and figure out how to make it right. Put your Bible study down and figure out how to get right with the people around you. Now, some of you need wisdom in this because you've had deep hurts with people. You've hurt or been hurt deeply, and I'm happy to try to give you counsel. We've got folks on the prayer team that'll be over here tonight that'll be happy to give you counsel because there's some folks that you've probably wounded so bad, they don't want you coming to them right now and saying, I'm really sorry about this or that. There's a right way to live this passage out in Matthew 5, but it is so important. Jesus said, stop your church stuff and fix the relationship stuff, then do the church things. And he wasn't mixing words. In the first story, we saw that Jesus is the bread that comes down from heaven. And the second story, we see Paul point out that Jesus is the rock from whom everyone drinks. In the third story, we see three men up on a hill. The one in the middle has his arms outstretched with a great battle of good versus evil in front of him. And as long as his arms stay outstretched, the battle lands on the side of good. You fast forward 1,500 years and there will be three men on a hill. And there will be one in the middle with his arms outstretched. And there's a great battle of good and evil going on all around him for as long as humans have been around. And as long as he kept his arms outstretched until the end of that day when he breathed his last, the battle was won and good prevailed. All the way back in this story, there's a foreshadowing to the power of Christ up on the cross with his arms extended in this great battle of good and evil going on. And he conquered the greatest of all evils, death. He put death and sin and shame to bed on that cross. And Moses was just painting a small picture of what that day would be like. And so for you and I tonight, wherever you are in these three stories, questioning is God trustworthy, wondering are his commands and his instructions dependable, trying to figure out your interpersonal relationship skills in, in Christ, know this, apart from trusting the man on the hill. Everything else pales in comparison. There was a moment where Jesus told his disciples. They'd come back from a mission trip. It was a great moment. They were so excited about things. And he said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. But you rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So tonight, are your names written in heaven? Have you trusted Christ? And if they are, Sort through all the things the Lord may be asking you to do, but most of all, 
Rejoice that your names are written with him because he is trustworthy. His word is dependable and he has the best plan for how we relate to each other. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you so much that you love us, that you are dependable, that you have these incredible plans for us to follow you and worship you and know you. And Lord, you have these incredible plans of how we should treat one another. May we be good stewards of those plans. Father, may we now rejoice that our names are written in you. May we deal with conviction you bring in our life and may we handle it rightly and may we pass the test that you bring for us in obedience. It's in Christ's name I pray, amen. 